Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. I mean, I'm kind of introducing my sermon as well as introducing the whole series when I say this, but there is a tendency in Christianity to limit what the Bible speaks to, as we just talked about, to a very, sli- a very thin slither of life, which is kind of the ethical and moral slither. And we, you know, everyone knows the phrase WWJD, what would Jesus do? And the problem with that phrase is, it implies that what Jesus spent his time doing was making ethical or moral decisions. But Jesus, did, Jesus was a person. Jesus did things. Jesus was a human. He didn't spend his time thinking, hmm, what do I do in this situation? What do I do in that situation? If I were to wake up and get out of bed and ask myself, what would Jesus do? You wouldn't find me down at the church office. You would find me chopping up wood and shaping it into furniture because Jesus was a carpenter. Perhaps a better theory I realize and not so easy to put on a bracelet term would be something like, what would Jesus do if he were me in this situation? And this morning and over the next few weeks, we really want to unpack that whole, what is our humanity? What does that God has made us as humans mean for us as Christians? What does it do? How do we live differently as Christians? And uh, as I say, this morning, I want to particularly focus on the fact that God has called us to be creators. I want to start with a story this morning uh, that I love. So Francis Schaeffer was um, theologian and apologist in the 20th century. And there's a story from when he was a lecturer at a Bible college in America. And during a lunch break, this was during the 60s, there were some hippies in the trees in the forest outside the Bible college protesting the trees being chopped down. And he decided to spend his lunch break going to them and talking to them. And he approached them and he said, it sounds like we have a lot in common. You love the nature. We love the beauty of nature. In fact, I love the beauty of nature because I believe in a creator God who made it. And he says that the people he was talking to just pointed back at the big gray, ugly building that he worked at, the Bible college, and said, it doesn't look like it. And that really struck. We believe in a creator God, so we're going to work in big gray, ugly buildings. It's not really congruent with the Christian vision. So this morning, if you give me the permission, I'd like to preach not from a specific text, but from Genesis to Revelation to give us a vision of what the Bible says to you and me as beings and how we are called to be creators, to be pursuers of beauty, to want beautiful things and to see beauty as a good in itself. So first, let's look at God. Let's, let's see what kind of creator God is. Then let's look at ourselves and see what we do from there. So first, let's look at God. Let's open our Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning. If you in Genesis, I'll give you a clue. It's the first one. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1. In the beginning, God. To the main character, God. Here he is. And the very first thing we're told about God, the very first characteristic it says, is that he is a creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The most important thing that the Bible, or rather the first thing that the Bible wants us to know about God is, this one you're addressing is a creator. Okie dokie. 
There we go. So, God is a creator. The Bible wants us to know that. But the question that comes is, what kind of creator? So when we think about creating things, we kind of have two camps. There's form, you know, things which look nice, things which are pretty, things which have flicks for no reason, and things which are functional. The form versus function debate, as it goes. Now in function, we're not worrying about how things look or how they appear to the eye. We're only worrying about what they do and how well they do it. When we talk about form, sometimes when you want to make something pretty, you have to sacrifice function to make it pretty. When you're thinking about function, you have to sacrifice things looking pretty to make it work. So, what kind of God, uh, what kind of creator is God? Which camp is he in? Let's go back to the beginning. We, we find Genesis 1, tells us that God creates, and then it starts to unpack that creation for us. On the first day, God looks out and he says, let there be light. And he calls the light good, and that's day one. But by two, day two, good is not good enough. And so God separates light. By day three, you find that what was called good on day two is no longer good enough. And so more things come in, and that's good. Day four, good not good enough, more. And it keeps going, and it keeps going. God keeps beautifying his creation. By day seven, it is very, very good. And at that point, something significant happens. God brings in humanity. And he calls them good. And he says they're great. And he gives them food to eat. And again, formal function. A ball of carbohydrate, perhaps. They need that. Maybe he puts powder of protein on the floor. This is all you need. This is all you need. You don't need to worry about taste. Have what you need. No, it doesn't say that. Genesis 2 verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God intentionally makes the things which we need nice to look at. As we go through the story, sin comes in, humanity rebels against its creator, and eventually God floods the world. But he calls Noah, and by covenant union, Noah's family is included too. And as you go through, you find he gives them a promise. Now, what is that promise? It's a promise that he'll never flood the world again. And how does he show it? By putting in big, bold letters, no more floods in the sky. No. By painting the landscape with color. By having a rainbow go across the sky. And this is God's way of saying... I won't do that again. You are safe. God chooses to use beauty to show what kind of promises he makes. As we move on from Genesis 9, you go through the book of Genesis, you meet the patriarchs. We meet Isaac and Jacob and, and so on. And then eventually God's people end up in Egypt in slavery. And he redeems them and he brings them out. And turn with me to Exodus 31. He brings his people out of slavery and he starts to give them instructions for how they are to worship him in the promised land. Now listen to what this says, Genesis 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bezalel and I have filled him with the spirit of God. This man is filled with the spirit of God to do what? To prophesy, to speak in tongues, to do some spiritual wonders. Why has God filled him with the Holy Spirit? 
He's filled him with Holy Spirit, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. Why? To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut and set stones. To work in wood. To engage in all kinds of crafts. God has put his spirit in someone so that they can be good at crafts. God cares about these beautiful things. Now, when we think about the Holy Spirit filling an artist, we might have this image of you know, someone closing their eyes and putting the paintbrush to the, to the canvas and then, ah, what's the Lord said? Oh, this is what the Lord said. That's not what's happening here. The Lord fills him with his spirit to be the artist that God has called him to be. As God's spirit goes into him, he's now empowered to make things for the worship of God. Now bear in mind that the things he's making are specifically for that purpose, to go in God's temple. God cares about being worshipped with pretty things. We'll then move on, carry on through the Bible. We won't go through every single stop, but we go through the period of the judges where it's up and it's down. They're with God, they're against God. Finally, God raises up a king, Saul, and Saul lets him down and David comes along. And David is the singing king the one who writes music for God. And the Bible tells us that these songs, if you like, are the songs that God inspired David to write for himself. Through David, God was giving us songs to sing about himself. Now, when you open the book of Psalms, you often find that they start with a little prelude. At group on Wednesday night, Andy read us Psalm 46, and it said, according to Amonoth, sometimes you find Higiath, and things like that. And often we read that and go, uh-huh. But these are musical terms. Amanoth, Psalm 46, is supposed to be sung by the sopranos. The point here, God doesn't just want his people to be chanting things. As long as you say truth, that's fine. He gives direction for how they sound, for, for making them sound pretty, for creating something that is good for him to listen to. Even the praises of God reflect the fact that God loves beauty. We carry on, and I don't want to do too many stops, but this one just really struck me when I was going through it the other day. Jeremiah 29 is possibly a very, very well-known chapter for one verse. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This is speaking to the Israelites in exile. But this is part of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah writes to those in exile. Now, I was just going to read verse 5, which is when God says to the exiles, what do you do in, in Babylon? What do you do there? Build houses, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. But something struck me before I could, that I want to clarify. At the beginning of chapter 29, Jeremiah tells us who is in exile because the Babylonians didn't take everyone. What it tells us is that King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the craftsmen. In other words, all of the artists have been taken into Babylon. What does God tell the Babylonian, uh, the um, artists in Babylon to do? Build things and plant gardens. Carry on. That is God's purpose for you in exile. Make things which are nice. Two more stops I want to make. 
Jesus. Jesus comes to us and he says, consider the lilies. In other words, take some time to stop and look at these flowers. And Jesus continues, see how your father in heaven clothes them in more splendor than King Solomon was clothed in. The point there is God has chosen to make these things beautiful. Stop and consider them. And finally, Revelation 21, that incredible image of the new creation that Paul read to us. What kind of detail is God concerned with in this chapter? Now, bear in mind, Revelation 21 is a symbol of the new creation, just as all the rest of the book of Revelation is talking in symbols. So we shouldn't think that what we read in Revelation 21 is what will literally be happening, but symbols match up with what they're symbolizing, otherwise they're pointless. And what we see in Revelation 21 is a beautiful city. The city is introduced by saying, come and see the beautiful bride. And then verse 18 and 19, the wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The symbol is a city which is decorated, which is beautiful, which isn't just functional. It's not just, yes, there are houses for everyone, but they're all big and gray. God is recreating the world to be a beautiful place for his people to live in. So with this sweep of the Bible, with this sweep of all biblical history, to answer that question, what kind of creator is God? God is a God who loves to create and to create with what seems like gratuitous beauty. God seems to say, I like pretty things because they are nice. God says, what do you mean form versus function? The form is the function. The function is I want it to look nice. God creates things that look nice because he wants them. That's the kind of creator he is. Not only that, he is a creator who makes things with no audience but himself to enjoy. In 2019, NASA released a whole load of photos from Pluto, really, really close up. And I remember scrolling through them and thinking to myself, thousands and thousands of years, this planet has existed. Sorry, not a planet. But... Now, for the first time, we are seeing these canyons and these views and these vistas on this planet, which is so far away, we will never go there. And what that made me think is, there are millions and millions of planets too far for any of us in any time ever to travel to that are equally as beautiful as Earth. Who is the audience? God. God has made it just for himself to enjoy. He loves to create and to create well. That's the kind of God that he is. He loves things that are nice. God sees beauty as a good in itself. So we look at God and we see he is a creator. And he's not just a creator who does things functionally. He's a creator who does things to be nice says something about him. So now as we look at ourselves, what do we find? We find that God has created us in his image, unsurprisingly, to also like things which are nice, to create things, to pursue things which are good. 
I think I can prove this morning that we actually value things that look nice over what we eat, where we live, those kind of things. I have a simple experiment. Ladies, any of you have gold jewelry, a wedding ring, earrings, anything made of gold? Just put your hand up. Okay, quite a few hands. It seems that most people have some gold jewelry. When I was younger, I remember uh, I was actually watching a Batman cartoon where one of the villains stole a whole load of gold. And I said to my dad, why do people want gold? And he said, well, because it's valuable. Why is it valuable? Because people are willing to pay a lot of money for it. Why do people pay a lot of money for it? Because it's valuable. And it really, I, I just couldn't work, I couldn't get my head around it. Why do people want this thing so much? If you Google the usefulness of gold, it will tell you gold is an incredibly useful um, metal because of its uh, ability to conduct electricity. In fact, NASA have over 100 uses of gold in their rockets. Ladies, you who raised your hands, how many of you have gold jewelry for its electrical conduction properties? This material, for most of human history, undergirded our currency. We worked out what was valuable, how much we are willing to pay for food according to gold. Why do people like gold? Because it's pretty. When you put it back, when you take it back to it, you know, the most basic thing, people like it because it looks nice and therefore they want to shape it. They want to make it into something that looks good. They want to use it in their designs. And we are willing to base the worth of everything else on that. That says something about us. As people, you find in every culture they have a distinct architecture, distinct art, distinct food. Every culture likes to create and shape things and make things look nice in their own way because we are made in the image of someone who likes to make things that look nice. But it's not just that. It's not just that we happen to do it and if God leaves us to it, we do it. It's that he commands us to do it. Turn back with me to Genesis 1. Let's stay in Genesis for a bit. Genesis 1. Verse 26, God makes humanity and he says this, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Again, jump with me into Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Just a little bit further again, verse 19 now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. God, Genesis shows us this creation that God has created that is incredible, that is teeming with beauty and life. And God, you find, creates this creature, this um, man and woman, and he puts them in the garden. Now, what we might expect at this point in the story is that what God says is, look at it, but don't touch it. You know, when uh, 
I think, I think dads are particularly given to this. They have a hobby and they want their kids to kind of get involved as well, so long as they're merely spectators. You know, you can look at it, but keep your hands away. Is that what God says? No. Do something with it. Work it. Shape it. Name it. What are you going to call this? What are you going to call that? You see that soil that's never been turned? Try turning it. Put some seeds in it. See what you get. You see that tree? Chop it down. Turn it into something. Maybe you'll make a table. Now, this command to do something with it, to shape it, of course has limitations. The person who has you know, chopped down an entire forest or keeps chickens in cages or is willing to you know, um, uh, not be safe with things like oil can't just say, oh, I'm just taking dominion. No, no. The command is there to preserve it and care for it, but it's not don't touch it. Do something with it. Shape it. And one of the most marvelous things that I think is that when we do what God calls us to do, to shape those raw materials of creation, to take the wood and to take um, the soil and to do whatever we can with it, we find all the little Easter eggs that God has hidden for us. Let me explain what I mean by that. In video games or sometimes DVD menus, the creators will make a little uh, secret. You have to be in the right place at the right time and have done the right thing and you get a little glimpse, a little bonus that they don't tell you about, but you discover it. And so people find these and they share them. God has hidden Easter eggs all over creation. Let me, let me share with you two that I particularly love. God says, you see that cow? Squeeze those bits and you get milk. But that's not it. If you churn that milk, you get butter. But that's not it. You see that, that flour, wheat, is that what you called it? Wheat, yeah. Take the grains, separate the germ and the, and the husk, and mill it, and you get this fine stuff called flour. You see these long sugar cane things? If you chop them and suck them, they're really nice, but if you do the right thing to them, you get this powder called sugar. Now, what happens when you put all three of those little secrets together? You get cake. Who invented cake? God did. Humans discovered an Easter egg that God had hidden in creation. Why does that excite me so much? Because what other Easter eggs are there that we haven't found yet? What's the new cake? Another one that I think is particularly profound. You look at a tree, take some steel, you take some wire. You do the right things with it, you create a piano. If you play Beethoven's Fifth Concerto in E-flat on a piano, first you'll make my heart start to beat quite fast, and then probably you'll make me cry. In 2011, three years before my dad was diagnosed, we were in the car, and he put this song on. And he said, if I ever die, I want this to be the song that reminds you of me. And dad used to close the curtains and put his headphones in and listen to this song. And whenever I listen to it now, I'm back as a 14-year-old boy in my car with my dad. 
Trees, steel, and wire. You do the right thing with them, and you have me in tears. That is an Easter egg that God has hidden in creation. When God calls us to take dominion, he is calling us to find the things in creation that he has put for us, to be creators, to make use of it. It's a wonderful privilege to have. And it's part of the very fabric of what it means to be human, to take things and to shape them. A few years ago, I was thinking to myself, in the Bible, we are faced with a God who gives commands to humanity and then eventually became a human. And I was thinking to myself, what kind of commands are there, which I'd love to know how God kind of thought of them as a human, you know, when he, when, as Jesus was on the earth. The first thing I thought of was the Sabbath command. What does resting look like for God? And it struck me when Jesus was on the earth, how did he spend the Sabbaths? Healing people. For God, rest looks like restoring other people. But then the other thing I thought of was this command to shape the raw materials of creation, to do something with them. What was Jesus' job? He was a carpenter. He literally, the job he chose while he was on this earth is to take the raw materials of creation and to shape them into something useful. This dominion command is on all humans. Now, unfortunately, there is a tendency in Christianity to say things like, we only care about forgiveness of sins. That's what we're here for. Now, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is central to our faith. Let it never be taken away from, the, from primary position. But the reality is, if you are to go through the whole Bible, if we were to preach every single verse in the Bible, not every verse would be on that subject. We would have to deal with things like this. And the problem is when Christians act as though arts or music or theater or literature is the world's property, we act as though these are not gods. And we end up thinking more like Plato, the pagan philosopher, than a biblical worldview, which says these things belong to God and have been gifted to us. Plato said this world is a pale imitation of the ideal world. This just falls short. This is like shadows on a wall. And so painting, for instance, is making a pale imitation of a pale imitation, i.e. utterly pointless. And Plato's thinking was, the only good thing a human can really do with their mind is things like maths. Now, if Nat Jenkins was still here, he'd give a hearty amen at this point. Maybe poor Will for him. The point is, though, the arts, science, literature, all these kind of things belong to God they, because he has given them to us humans. This is part of our very fabric. Now, if you call yourself a Christian, what you are saying is, I am marked, I am a member of the new humanity, the new creation that God is bringing. And I anticipate that day where we will live on a new earth. If that is true, we should be more human than what we were before we became Christians. We should want the things that God has made for humanity more. These are God's, and he's given them to us to pursue in his image. So as I wrap up, what do we do with this? 
You know, we've seen God, creator, loves beauty, pursues it. We've seen that he calls us to be creators, lovers of beauty, pursuing it, to see beauty as a good in itself. So what am I doing? What is this sermon? Is this sermon saying, if you're a Christian, you're not an artist, you're failing? No, I'm not saying that at all. Am I saying, if you're a Christian, you have to have the prettiest house? No, I'm not saying that either. There have been great portions of church history where Christians simply couldn't afford to have anything more than um, the basics. And there are many Christians who that's still true for today. This is not condemnation on that at all. Rather, I want to make two points from this this morning. The first one is the call to pursue beauty, to be creators, is primarily a call to pursue God. If you love beauty, if you love to create, then you are going to constantly be looking for who does it best, for what is best, what looks the best, and that quest will ultimately take you back to God. And when you come to God, two things happen. The first thing is that everything else suddenly seems a lot less glorious. The best painting I've ever seen seems Rubbish when I simply come to you, O oh Lord. The most beautiful vista I've ever seen does not capture your worth, O oh God. His beauty and his radiance and his gloriousness suddenly seem magnified. But the second thing is that suddenly everything else is beautified. You go out and you see a leaf. And you look at all the veins on the leaf and you go... Every single one designed by God. You look at anything that has value or beauty and you now see it through the lens. God has created this to be good and suddenly everything seems better. Me and Andy were talking this week about the hymn, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth seem strangely dim. There's a theologian called Joe Rigney who's written a book called Strangely Bright because he makes this point that when you come and look at Jesus, actually the things of the world seem strangely bright. He beautifies them. And so let's come to the source of all beauty, God, and be satisfied in him. The second call this morning is to be a Christian creator if you are a creator. Doesn't matter what you do. If you're a chef, a gardener, an architect, an artist, a singer, a musician, you can go through the whole list of creativity. My call for you this morning is do it as a Christian. Now, unfortunately, Christian is often the worst adjective for a creative project. I actually hate I really do not enjoy films which are traditionally called Christian films. They are so bad, so cheesy. The plot is just so predictable all the time. I won't go on. It can be the worst adjective. It really shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. To be Christian art, it doesn't have to have a picture of Jesus in. It's not only a Christian song if you, you know, go through the Apostles' Creed. A Christian song is a song sung by a Christian to the glory of their God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, sorry Andy for stealing your sermon next week, eat and drink as Christians. Eat and drink to the glory of God. How much more so can we do paintings or uh, draw 
or whatever else we do, plant plants for the glory of God, to do it as Christians, not detaching it from it. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, used to sign a lot of his songs with just SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. It wasn't his way of saying, this is a Christian song. It was his way of saying, I've written this to glorify God. Rembrandt, the great um, Renaissance artist, Yes, he was a Christian, and there are multiple um, pieces of art he did which were explicitly about Jesus. But he did lots and lots of artwork, which he did as a Christian. You don't have Rembrandt's non-Christian art and his Christian art. If you are a Christian artist, do your art as a Christian, constantly coming back to God. And finally, the very last thing I want to say, when we do that, when we do keep coming back to God as the source of all beauty when we do want to live as creative people because God has made us to be that way, something surprising happens when you come to God. You find God is a master artist. One of the things that marks a master is the ability to take the discordant notes and make them part of the melody. You know, an orchestra, uh, sorry, a composer who can say, oh, we're in the key of D, but then constantly be going out of key and it sounds good. God has the ability to draw the most discordant notes into a beautiful harmony. The most profound expression of the beauty of God that has ever been seen in this world is ugly. The most profound expression is a man bleeding and dying slowly on a cross. It's true and it's good, but it is ugly. But there is an ironic beauty there. Just as when Anna gave birth to Evangeline and she was uh, tired and sweaty and bedraggled. And I looked at her and I said, you are beautiful. There was an ironic beauty that shone through because of what she achieved. In Isaiah 52, when it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who, could the, who bring the good news. Their feet are not beautiful. They are ugly. But what they have achieved through that process makes them beautiful. God is the God who can subvert our expectations of beauty, who can draw in the ugly discordant notes and make them part of a harmony, who can take us broken sinners and make them part of his melody. Calvin said, the world is the theater of God's glory and the church is the orchestra. We are the people who say, wow, look at the works of God that you and me and the person dying on a cross are called beautiful. That's the kind of God we come to, the God who allowed sin because he knew what he could do with it. So if you are a creative, if you're someone who'd like to be creative or any of those things or are simply a human who enjoys things which are pretty, be empowered and encouraged by God to keep pursuing that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have created us as whole people. We aren't souls that float about the place, but Lord, we are people with interests and desires and wants that you have given us. Lord, when those desires and those wants become bent by sin and turn us against you, bring us back, we pray. When the things of earth seem brighter and more beautiful than you, bring us back, we pray. But Lord, teach us to pursue beauty, to be creators, to be people who want to take dominion as that command gives us. 
we want to love beauty because we come to the most beautiful thing in all the world. Give us your spirit, we pray. Amen.